Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for uh, joining us this evening. My name is Greg Petrowich. I'm the executive director of WSIU Public Broadcasting here in Carbondale. And we appreciate the fact that you've taken some time on a Thursday evening to join us for what is really an important discussion that's been going on for, well, forever, but recently for the last couple of years with great intensity. And uh, even though there is now a budget, Illinois obviously still faces some problems. So. We're going to be addressing some of those issues tonight, taking some of your questions. We want to thank our uh, partners at AARP and NPR Illinois, and I want to introduce the uh, general manager of NPR Illinois, Randy Eccles. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, we are the State House Bureau uh, for all the public radio and television stations in the state. NPR Illinois is based in Springfield, and we've been taking these Illinois issues forums all around the state. Uh, we realized uh, several months ago now that it didn't seem like everybody in the state understood how much impact the budget impasse was having. And so we thought to go around and have some experts to give us context, but also to hear from you how it's either created concerns or, or real impacts would be important. And we've heard amazing stories throughout the state, and so we're thrilled to get to partner with AARP and WSIU to be able to bring this to Southern Illinois and Carbondale tonight. So in just a moment, our panel will be able to uh, start the show. But first, I'd like to introduce you to the director of AARP Illinois, Bob Gallo. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Greg. And I really appreciate all of you being here this evening. Um, we started this, uh, it feels like a year ago, when our state government was incapable for two years of passing a budget. And whether you know it or not, that's a fundamental function of a governor and a, and a state um, general assembly to do that job. And what we were hearing and what we were seeing all around the state is the pain that that was causing to so many individuals and their families. We saw nonprofit provider organizations closing their doors, laying off people, which meant um, simple things like meals on wheels were not being given to individuals. And in towns like Alton, Illinois, where someone was getting five meals a week, they were maybe lucky if they were getting one. So, you know, we think that government provides all these services. No, but government provides the funding to other organizations to do it on the behalf of government. Um, and to the benefit of its citizens, particularly those who are most vulnerable. When we see our institutions of higher education, like the one we're in tonight, being threatened with bond ratings at junk status and students wondering if the accreditation of those universities or colleges are in jeopardy and if their degrees are going to be worth something and considering leaving the state to go to another school. We, we have a, a dubious um, we have a dubious honor with the state of New Jersey where our biggest export is our students right now because they don't want to take the chance of going to school here and, and their parents are concerned about that type of an investment. So what we've been saying at AARP Illinois all around the state in these efforts is enough is enough. And so yes, a budget has been passed, but we are not out of the woods yet billions and billions of dollars in unpaid bills to those folks who have contracts with the state to be paid have not been paid. 
but you know, the pensions that you hear about are so far underfunded, um, we don't know how we're going to catch up. So now we're going into a gubernatorial election season. There's gonna be a lot of individuals in the General Assembly who have decided to quit. Um, because of whatever reasons they've decided to quit, and so new individuals will be asking for our votes. But the only way this situation is gonna change at this point, because we can't stand this gridlock and standoff anymore, because it cannot get any worse, because we never will recover. So we need people like yourselves to tell your stories and to demand solutions for our elected officials, and these good individuals up here on the stage, on the panel, are gonna share with you how it's affected them and their institutions and what they think some of the solutions are as well. So I very much appreciate for being here and uh, take it away, Sean. Thanks, Bob. Thanks everybody for coming out tonight. I'm Sean Crawford, I'm with NPR Illinois, which is the public radio station based in Springfield, but we also provide coverage of state government issues, public affairs issues for the entire state, including for WSIU here in Carbondale. Um, we know that Illinois has a budget. That happened over the summer after a two-year budget impasse in which they couldn't get their act together. But there have been a lot of problems that were created by that. There were problems before that, and there are still problems the state has now. So we'd like to have a dialogue tonight, have you step up to the mics here in a few moments. If you have a question, a comment, anything you'd like to, to ask our panel or just like to state, um, we'd like to hear from you tonight and have a two-way conversation. But we are going to introduce our panel first and hear from them individually. And why don't we go ahead and get started with Sherry Crabb. She's right next to me here. She's Executive Director of Family Counseling Center. And Sherry began her career as a youth outpatient therapist, eventually coordinated youth programs and became the Family Counseling Center's executive director in 2014. It provides behavioral health services at 16 sites across far southern Illinois. She can talk more about it, and this is Sherry. Hi, thanks for having us tonight, and we really appreciate AARP and NPR giving a voice to human service providers. Family Counseling Center serves nearly 2,000 individuals. We employ 150 people, have an annual budget of $7.2 million, and we serve seven counties. Along with that, we have 20 different programs dedicated to helping others help themselves reach their fullest human potential. Life during the budget impasse. Well, it can be summed up in three words at Family Counseling Center. Uncertainty, transformation, and perseverance. With no end to the state budget in sight, we put together a very proactive plan to combat the dire cash flow situation that was developing. Starting with myself, our agency laid off or reduced hours of 37 employees, decreased services within our behavioral health division, and then later closed the only youth homeless shelter in the southern seven counties. We decreased benefits, employees lost holidays, personal time, they even lost their retirement plan. We moved two outpatient offices, we moved two residential facilities, all in hopes of saving dollars and trying to run our business more efficiently to make it through. A huge transformation of our agency has taken place in a very short period of time. Over the past couple of years, Illinois' budget impasse has been a disaster for our state's human service infrastructure. Many organizations are being forced out of the state, many have closed their doors, and entire programs are in danger of being extinct. 
Our communities depend on a strong base of human service organizations to thrive and succeed, but instead are facing dire risk due to depleted funds. We're talking about child care for working parents, persons with disabilities, mental illness, addiction disorders, homeless youth, and senior care services. The fact is, many of us in this room right now, we've required some of these programs, we know people who have needed these programs, or inevitably we will need these programs as we go through our lifespan. Due to this uncertainty, rural Illinois specifically has experienced a mass exodus of its professional workforce that is skilled and must be in place to be able to um, help our fellow neighbors achieve success and contribute to our communities. During the budget impasse, as Vice Chair for Illinois Partners for Human Services, which is a statewide coalition of 800 members, let's call them construction workers, that build well-being in our community. So in that position, I traveled up, down, across the state of Illinois, thousands of miles, taking these issues I've spoke about with you in front of legislative committees, media outlets, town halls, congressional members, and even the governor himself. At times, I felt like we were spinning our wheels where nowhere to go. We turned our message away from speaking about the human toll as the culture in Illinois seemed to be desensitized after numerous stories of tragedies related to the lack of funding and programming were told. We then turned to what the economic engine of our services create in Illinois. Human service providers are one of the largest employers in our state and have one of the principal roles in helping mold and lift up our state to ensure that people want to live here, work here, and invest here. The fact needs to be told over and over again so people start to get it. Human service providers are businesses and they're foundation pillars that hold our community up and together. Without stable human service infrastructures, our communities will continue to crumble, crumble even more so than what they've already done. I'm asked quite often, aren't you relieved that the budget impasse is over so you can rest and take a break? My answer is no, we cannot afford to rest. Just last week, the governor announced an $89 million reduction for the Illinois Department of Human Services. Now, since it's not legally required to spend money uh, on such programs as lawmakers authorize in the budget, unless there's some sort of statute, the governor can make reductions on his own budget even if, on his own, even if a budget is passed. Our children's, families, and neighbors' livelihoods are at stake in the state of Illinois. Well-being is built. It's invested in. It's repaired when broken. Otherwise, our people, communities, will not be able to weather the storms that, will inevitably, that we all inevitably experience throughout our lifespan. Thank you. Thanks, Sherry. Well, one of the bigger accomplishments, I would say, over the last few years at least in, in Illinois government was the adoption of a new school funding formula in the state, one that will bring more money to the needier districts in Illinois. And up next on our panel here is Brent Clark. He's executive director of the Illinois Association of School Administrators, and he helped negotiate that legislation. He can talk about that. He's also an adjunct professor here at SIU. He teaches graduate courses for school administrators. And Brent, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you to uh, NPR and uh, the AARP group for having us here tonight. I uh, 
this past summer um, was was literally living at the state capitol for Illinois uh, as we were negotiating not only a budget but revenue and finally a, a bill to move the money from the state capitol to the schools. One of the most frustrating things from around J July the 6th through the end of August was explaining to people across the state that yes, we have a budget. They had heard that on the news. Yes, we have revenue. But no, we don't have a vehicle to move the money from Springfield to wherever your school district is at. People would just shake their head in disbelief of the dysfunction that could just paralyze a state. So um, my role uh, was uh, negotiating that, and uh, the group I work for represents all the school districts in Illinois. Uh, I uh, literally have members from Cairo uh, to, to the Wisconsin border, from the Iowa border to the Indiana border. We have 852 school districts in Illinois. And as you can imagine, there might be something that goes off the rails in at least one of those districts each day. So our, our office is based in Springfield, and uh, we have field offices in Schaumburg uh, near O'Hare Airport and a field office in Marion, just uh, down Route 13. So we're spread out across the state. I'm a Southern Illinois guy. I grew up in uh, Williamson County. I still live in Williamson County. I went to Johnston City High School. Uh, I'm probably the only panelist that has their junior high band director in the audience tonight. I think I see Mr. Cragness back there. Uh, he taught me to play the trumpet, at least a limited amount. And uh, so Mr. Cragness, thanks for being here tonight. I'm sure you didn't come just to see me, but it's good to see you. And uh, I went to SIU for a couple of graduate degrees. And uh, I would tell you that um, the work that's going on in Illinois to just hold Illinois together uh, during this incredibly toxic time period is strenuous work and it's taking a lot of people a lot of hours and it's not you heard from human services there's more to come here but just on the different facets of of holding our government together holding our livelihoods together for the people of our state I don't think people realize how close we were to actually collapsing without a budget without a revenue stream uh, and without funding that went out to our schools we had schools literally set to close on September 15th they were going to shut their doors. Borrowing was done. They had spent every penny they had. They were out of money. They weren't going to borrow anymore. They were done. They were going to close their doors. As you know, just a few days before that, on the 28th of August, uh, the House finally passed the evidence-based model. It was now called Senate Bill 1947. That is a a formula, if you will, that determines how many dollars uh, each kid needs across the state, depending on their demographics and their profile, the location that they're at in the state, and then that moves the money legally from Springfield out to those districts. On the 29th of August, the Senate passed the bill, and on the 31st of August, the governor signed the bill. Uh, some of the most disheartening work uh, is now watching um, the, the governor campaign on TV, about the great job he did over the summer and championing this work for the for the kids of Illinois. The truth is that is um, the furthest thing from the truth. Uh, we, we had to deal with a very difficult to deal with governor when it came to getting this done and it was the 11th hour, the 11th minute or the last minute of the 11th hour when it, we're getting it across the line. So uh, don't believe everything you see on a campaign commercial. Uh, just because you have millions of dollars to buy campaign commercials doesn't mean what they're saying is true. Uh, but we are in difficult times in Illinois. I believe Illinois is worth saving. We have a great state with great people. We're a resourceful state, but the toxicity in our political system is, is a paralysis to us. So I look forward to being a part of the uh, 
uh, panel tonight. I do have some grad students with us tonight. Everybody <laughs> raise, your, raise your hand. So I told them this would be an exhilarating experience, so here they are. So thanks for coming. Thanks a lot, Brent. Uh, let's keep moving on. We have Marlene Shepard. Uh, she is to the right of Brent here. And she's with the Sparrow Coalition. And that is a community partnership focused on addressing homelessness and poverty in Southern Illinois. Marlene. Thank you for having us. When I heard that panelists had five minutes uh, to talk about the effect of the budget impasse in Southern Illinois, I thought, how in the world are we going to fit it all in? I think the most important thing to know is that it will take a decade, maybe more, for our social service sector to recover. Uh, two years without state funding for senior services, domestic violence, programs for those with mental illnesses, at-risk youth, the list is long. The first thing that we began to see was the increase of people on our streets, many of them struggling with mental health and addiction issues. Our police departments can tell you how the burden of caring for those with the most difficult issues in our communities have shifted to them, to law enforcement. And to their credit, they're really trying to respond, getting new training, hiring social workers on police departments. But this is not their primary responsibility. And as a local police chief told the Sparrow Coalition, they cannot do it alone. I very much hope that people in our region and in our state are making the connection between the loss of social services over the last two years and the rise in crime that we are experiencing in our communities. The second thing that we began to see is what I call the hidden homeless. These are not the people that you see on the street. These are your servers at restaurants your grocery baggers, your nursing home aides, the aides for your, our students at schools. Many of them will never have an income large enough to afford housing that is adequate for their family size. So what we see a lot of in Southern Illinois is two families living in two bedrooms or three and four generation families sharing the same family home. Here in Jackson County, every day, in our schools, there are hundreds of children who go home at night to motels, area campgrounds, shelters, and sometimes even their cars. The last thing that they want you to know about them is that they are homeless. What made the budget impasse particularly cruel for our region is how bad we were already suffering and partially because of how bad the state of Illinois was already acting. For the last several years, not paying their bills, either on time or at all, for social services they had contracted for with local nonprofits. It's a double hit for us. Because as Sherry mentioned, the people who work in social service agencies in Southern Illinois are often themselves low income. I watched 
one organization's employees take away their own health care benefits in order to keep their services going during the budget impasse. And what really makes me mad is that many of our agencies here were actually managing their money quite well, despite the state's failure to pay them. Many of them had at least a year's expenses in reserve, uh, best practice for nonprofits. They planned to invest in needed updates and improvements. And because of the state, they used it all to keep their doors open. Since I can't talk for five hours, only for five minutes, I want to tell you about some of the people that I see. I see a lot of elderly, particularly women, living off about $700 a month Social Security and $20 a month food stamps. We're seeing a lot more professional poor, young professionals like myself who earn low incomes, others who work civil service jobs here at SIU and John A. Logan College. Many of us will never be able to afford our own homes. Some of us will never be able to pay off our college debt. Current SIU students living in cars, crouching, cashing, crashing on couches, and eating at the university's food pantries. But what we see the most of in terms of housing insecure in Southern Illinois are working single parents with young children. This is why we are focusing our efforts at the Sparrow Coalition on the development of more affordable housing in Southern Illinois and in homelessness prevention measures such as rent and utility assistance. And while we trust these initiatives will be successful, we know they are a drop in the bucket to what is actually needed. We desperately need economic development and growth industries. But until then, we need adequate social services to keep a roof over our heads. Thank you. Thanks, Marlene. Thanks, Marlene. Uh, we move on now. Jack Titchener. I don't know if he needs an introduction, but a lot of people know who he is. He is the interim director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, and he's been a longtime journalist in this area, a very savvy interviewer. He also hosts the show Illinois Lawmakers, which airs on public television around the state. I've been listening to him since I was a small child, so <laughs> Jack Titchener. I knew you were going to get that in. <laughs> When I was a little kid in Heron, yeah. Um, thank you very much. And thanks to NPR Illinois and to AARP for organizing this wonderful uh, set of budget discussions around the entire state of Illinois. It's a terrific public service that uh, you've all been engaged in. One word comes to mind in looking at this situation, unprecedented. What just happened in Illinois in terms of the budget is like watching an Indiana Jones movie. You have to suspend your disbelief so that you can keep up with the plot line. This has never happened. 
I've been covering the Illinois State House uh, on the ground since uh, 1991 for the Illinois Lawmakers Show. And used to be the biggest surprise would come on June 30th, back when that was adjournment day, the last day of the uh, fiscal year. We would just kind of lose our minds when we didn't see the budget until maybe 9 o'clock that night. And then they would do this quaint little thing. They would just stop the clock in the chambers, and uh, they'd go on to maybe 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, finally get the thing done. We'd go crash, and uh, make sure everything would be about the same. Well, there were problems, uh, needless to say. I remember one year, I think this was before Sean came to Springfield, when uh, Jim Edgar and Mike Madigan were duking it out. We, it was unbelievable. We went 18 days into July. We called it June 48th. But it actually happened. We got through it. We got, uh, we got a budget. But to go more than two years without a budget, uh, a permanent budget for the fifth largest state in the country and the fifth, the fifth largest, excuse me, economy in the country, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And uh, as Marlene and uh, Sherry have indicated a little earlier, we're going to be years digging our way out of this. And by uh, no means uh, did we actually solve the problem with the, the tax increase in the budget that was passed a few weeks ago. A little bit of background, the temporary income tax increase that was passed in 2011 expired on December 31st of 2014. The rate went back from 5% uh, for individuals to 3.75%. Almost overnight, literally, the state lost $2.3 billion in income for that 2015 fiscal year. Uh, later, when uh, it fully expired, uh, a year later, another $4.6 billion in tax receipts for fiscal year 2016. But we kept spending at the same rate, even though we lost the income, okay, even though we lost the income, we kept spending at the same rate and actually even higher. Our revenues went down to about 30, we went from a budget of around 35, 36 billion dollars down to 32 billion dollars and over time, over this two-year budget uh, impasse, we were spending upwards of 39 to 40 billion dollars. That's how at the end of the day you end up with a 16 and a half billion dollar bill backlog. Now as you recall, the governor, uh, was insistent upon having a business-friendly turnaround agenda that uh, he wanted to pass uh, in exchange for a budget. That ran into a solid brick wall from the Democratic uh, majorities in the House and Senate. And uh, they passed their own budget. The governor vetoed that. Everything but K through 12 that year uh, for 2016. So there was no authority to spend anything else. So we went on this kind of automatic pilot for two years based on court decrees, consent decrees, uh, statutory spending authority that uh, held the force of law and administrative, uh, administrative uh, rulings. So we spiral into the situation where we're $16.5 billion in debt. And as Brent pointed out a little bit earlier, we were hovering at junk bond status for the entire state economy. Uh, some universities like SIU were actually in junk bond status. Uh, we were so close to the downgrades, it wasn't funny. We were within probably 24 to 48 hours of our uh, bonds being worth not much at all. Democrats and Republicans, uh, a few Republicans joined forces, as you recall. They passed a $36 billion budget in an income tax to pay for it. The governor vetoed that. He was almost 
immediately overridden in early July. The Democrats uh, projected a $350 million surplus in that budget. The last figures we're seeing are uh, kind of allude to what uh, Sherry was talking about a little earlier when they cut uh, Department of Human Services by what, 79 million or is it 89 million? 84 million. 84 million. Um, 89 million. 89. The, the, uh, the governor estimates uh, his office of the management and budget estimates that uh, by the end of this fiscal year, we're going to be about 1.5 to 1.7 billion dollars short, uh, even though we did raise the taxes. Uh, why is that? Well, uh, Sean's colleague Charlie Wheeler at the U of I has an excellent uh, breakdown on this uh, at uh, NPR Illinois and Illinois Issues, and a couple of the highlights of that. Part of the problem is that the revenue estimates that come from the Committee for uh, Governmental Forecasting and Accountability and the Governor's Office of Management and the Budget were off. The, uh, the uh, figures were off by about a billion dollars for last fiscal year in terms of what the state actually took in. So we got a problem right out of the gate going into this new fiscal year. They were also banking, both the governor and the legislature were banking on this new tier three pension uh, reform plan that's out there that was going to save over a billion dollars. Well, this thing is harder to implement than they thought it was going to be. So the savings might be half of that or less. Then you run into uh, the fact that they built into the budget the idea of selling the James R. Thompson Center in Chicago. That was going to raise another $300 million. That hasn't happened yet. So I think it's fair to say that there's another budget showdown coming. That's not to say that there aren't some uh, possible revenue uh, options that they have out there, but we're going into an another, another election year cycle. And if you thought uh, raising taxes was radioactive this year, Wait till, uh, wait till we go into the primaries and the general election. Uh, Sherry and uh, Marlene did a fantastic job talking about the impact on the human services. The impact on higher education uh, was also quite uh, severe. There's a recent University of Illinois study that shows the two-year budget impasse had a dis disproportionate and lasting set of consequences for the state's public universities and community colleges. Enrollment at universities and community colleges uh, declined by more than 72,000 students during that period. Tuition at universities increased by 6.7%. This is the one that gets me. Fully 7,500 higher education-related jobs were lost in the state of Illinois, including cuts to 2,300 professional and instructional positions. The cumulative impact to the state of, uh, economy of Illinois was almost a billion dollars in lost annual economic output. Closer to home, the budget impasse, uh, according to the same study, probably caused a $44.5 million cumulative drop in transactions, market transactions, in southern Illinois, and another $36.5 million in central Illinois. The SIU system lost over $20 million from its budget, including $10 million at SIU Carbondale, resulting in layoffs and program cuts. Another way to look at it, the way SIU figures its economic impact for every dollar spent in this area for Southern Illinois, spent by Southern Illinois University, there's an estimated $8.25 lost uh, in lost economic activity. So that's a loss in the tens of millions of dollars throughout this region because of the impact. I'll stop there. 
Thanks, Jack. And uh, before we introduce our final panelist, I do want to again remind you that we'd like to hear from you tonight, comments, questions, and uh, you can start making your way to the microphone if you'd like to do that. Uh, I just want to say what Jack was talking about with the, with the lack of a state budget. I think a lot of people I've talked to around the state think that, oh, well, the state's not spending as much. They don't have a budget. Actually, the state's careening out of control without a budget. With spending, it'd be like you spending and not paying any attention to what's in your bank account for a couple of years and then saying, oh, man, we're really, we're really in for it now. That's where the state is, and it's trying to dig itself out, and it's got a long way to go. Our last panelist is the uh, director of the project development for Shawnee Health Service, Connie Favreau. And the uh, Shawnee Health Service provides care to residents across southern Illinois, regardless of their ability to pay. It provides medical, counseling, dentistry, and numerous other programs. Connie. Hi, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, um, I'm glad to be here this evening and to provide some perspective as to how um, the impasse has actually affected the healthcare operations in our region. Um, Shawnee Health Service is a community health center, also known as a federally qualified health center. Uh, we do receive some grant funding from the federal government to help serve those that are low income. Um, the federal situation is also affecting us pretty significantly as well. Uh, and it is only causing additional uh, strains on making budgetary decisions and looking at holding growth for the programs for uh, the area's residents. We currently have uh, health centers uh, providing medical services and dental services in Jackson and Williamson County. We serve approximately 31,000 folks every year. Uh, and provide about 165,000 encounters roughly. Uh, we employ physicians, uh, dentists, we also have social workers, uh, and our goal is to treat anyone regardless of their ability to pay. We see a lot of very, very poor folks, and we are able to use some of our federal funding to help uh, provide those services. We also rely very heavily on the Medicaid system. That itself is in jeopardy as well, as you know, on a federal level. Uh, we don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. Um, we have so severely been affected by this in what we can do with our uh, community, community partners. For example, we refer to the social service agencies, the homeless shelters, we serve those folks. Those resources have dwindled dramatically uh, in being able to provide care to those that are low income. Um, we also have a program called Shawnee Alliance. Uh, it was previously known as Shawnee Alliance for Seniors. And that program really reaches the population primarily 60 years and older in about a 13 county area. Um, some of the services are grant funded through the state uh, and these, they are billed out when the services are provided. Um, very interesting, during the impasse we were looking at essentially about six months before we would see any payment for any services that were provided. That creates obviously cash flow issues. 
We did see once the budget passed a little bit of a catch up. They caught up and got us down to payment at 66 days, which isn't too bad. But even in spite of that, we're already up to about 140 days. So we're creeping back into to that very, very slow cycle of uh, payment of the bills. Uh, in terms of the community, our, our heavily our economic engine in terms of uh, who employs in this region is the state of Illinois. The university systems, the prison systems, and we serve a good portion of those, those patients, as do a lot of private um, practitioners, dentists, or, or physicians in the region. The state of Illinois employee health plans have been a severe issue for us because, one, they're not paying those bills. We currently, as an organization, have nearly a million dollars in AR for those plans. Um, we are seeing payments taking close to two years for payment. So we are, we are carrying that burden, that load, every day. As a matter of fact, we have now a reporting to our board a separate amount as to what that's costing us. Uh, and it does create quite a bit of strain on the budget. It's also interesting to remind you that the state is paying 9% interest on those outstanding balances. That's additional taxpayer dollars. The other concern we've seen with a lot of the state of Illinois employees is when they need a higher level of care and they're seeking referrals. Um, we are now seeing that most of the Missouri providers are not accepting any referrals into that area. So it is limiting their options uh, and causing some issues in regards to that. Medicaid. Medicaid. Um, we are heavily funded with Medicaid. About 60% of our revenue in our clinics uh, is paid by Medicaid. That's both um, some federal influences that we're concerned as to how the ACA is going to uh, move forward, whether if we're going to have a repeal and replace. Uh, we've also seen the elimination of the subsidies that are going to be available for the insurance plans, which is going to produce a large stress on the patients uh, that are the lower incomes that were, have been purchasing these plans, and they're going to be expected to take those costs up themselves, and most likely they will become uninsured again, uh, causing much more difficulty for them in getting care. Many of those folks have to choose between much what you were talking about, Marlene, housing, food, medicine, Medicine typically gets dropped down, and we see a lot poor healthcare outcomes in that population. Um, we've also seen with Medicaid a lot of changes in coverage over the years. And uh, essentially, the one we are concerned about is the adult Medicaid population, especially the dental services. And we often talk about how poorly covered uh, Medicaid services are for the dental de for the dental needs of our patients. Uh, there are not providers that provide care. Uh, if a patient is uh, covered by Medicaid, simply because the fee for service cost uh, reimbursement is so poor that uh, it doesn't pay, it doesn't cover the cost for a dentist to actually provide those services. I mentioned the federal situation. Um, I, we are very concerned about the fact that 
the federal government is very slow in doing our health center funding. Um, we actually have passed the deadline and they've done a minor extension for it right now. But if we aren't funded, we as community health centers who serve the poorest population uh, are likely to leave about, lose about 70% of their funding. Uh, for Shawnee Health Service, we're looking at close to $2.3 million. Uh, that is estimated to actually reduce care to about 3,000 patients, most likely. So we have what I call the perfect storm brewing, not only at the state level, but the federal level. And on a day-to-day -day basis, we talk about money. And um, my executive director is sorry she's not here this evening. She's much more versed on this than I am. Uh, but she's actually having to talk to our board about these issues tonight. So she uh, sent me along. Um, thank you, NPR. Thank you, AARP, for this opportunity to talk with you all. And I'm looking forward to additional discussion. Thanks, Connie. And again, uh, we'd like to hear from you tonight. Feel free to step up to the mic. We'll listen to what you have to say. Maybe you have uh, relied. Would you please step to the mic if you want to make a comment? It would be great. If you, you know, have a state paycheck that you rely on, or maybe a state pension, or maybe you feel that you pay too much in taxes, we'd just like to hear what you have to say tonight. And let's go ahead and get started. Yes, thank you. Uh, good evening. Can you say your name? I'm sorry. Yeah, my name is uh, Rich Whitney. I'm a local attorney here in Carbondale, uh, also a former candidate for governor of Illinois. And uh, in that regard, I maintain an interest in policy solutions. Um, I'm not going to speak on that or make an extended comment on that, except to say that if people are interested in learning more about revenue solutions like the LaSalle Street tax or the progressive income tax that 32 states around the United States that are less stupid than Illinois have in place and how much revenue that would raise, you can avail yourselves of these green flyers that I have brought with me and learn more about those. But I do have a couple of questions for the panelists. I have one question uh, for Mr. Clark in particular and then one for the panel in general. The specific question for Mr. Clark is in the fiscal year 2018 budget that was passed this summer, probably the only bright spot, relatively speaking, was the increase in funding for K through 12 schools. And then as you mentioned, SB1, the, the improved formula for funding those schools uh, was passed uh, subsequently. My impression though was that there was a little bit of a slate of hand going on there because although there was this, uh, I think it was 450 some million increase, there were some things that were levied back to the schools like increased transportation costs and, and some other things. That's my understanding. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. So my, my specific question to you is, in, in your opinion, does the new funding formula and the new budget provide state funding at what you would consider an adequate foundation level, all things considered. And then for the panel as a whole, particularly the representatives of the nonprofits, I'm just, uh, I, I realize nonprofits are limited in what they can do as far as lobbying and so on, but uh, I'm wondering if any of you had had any interactions with some of the coalitions that are fighting for solutions in Illinois, like the Responsible Budget Coalition or Fair Economy Illinois. Thank you. 
Brent, let's start with you. Okay, so uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I remember your candidacy, and uh, you never know where our state lands, depending on uh, the votes at the ballot box. I always say elections have consequences, and we'll leave it at that. So uh, the, the correct number is there was a $350 million increase for K-12 uh, funding for the FY18 budget, and uh, that money will come in what's called a tier distribution. So we stratified every school district in Illinois into four tiers. And there's a hard line in the middle called the 90% adequacy line. So any school district that has less than 90% of what's calculated to be an adequate amount per student would fall below the hard line. So that in, below that is tier one and tier two. So those are the poorest districts in Illinois. There's a soft line, we call it, at 64%. Any school district that has less than 64% of what it needs per student to educate their child falls into tier one. That is the very poorest districts. Districts between 64 and 90 are tier two districts. So those, those districts comprise the bulk of downstate districts below 90% of funding. Districts that have more than 90 but less than 100 are considered tier three and districts that have more than 100% of adequate funding are considered tier four. So that's the way the distribution is, it really takes about six hours to explain this, but that's it in 60 <laughs> seconds. So you fall in a tier, based on your tier assignment uh, is how much money of the new money you get. In, in a global perspective, tier one and tier two districts, the, the poorest districts will receive 99% of the 350 million. Tiers three and tier four will, will share 1% of the new money because in reality they don't need it. It's the poorest districts that need it. So there's the way the tier distribution works. As to transportation, transportation has always been a standalone uh, reimbursement model outside of a school-based school funding formula. Be and the reason it's, it's, it's been that way is because of the diversity of transportation across Illinois. We have districts that have in excess of 400 square miles. They have 220 buses. They're running kids an hour and a half one way to get them and an hour and a half one way to take them home. Miles upon miles on these buses. We have school districts with no buses. So it's, it's a real uh, a dichotomy, if you will, between transportation programs across school districts. So in the new funding formula, we kept transportation again outside of the funding formula. It's still a reimbursement model so that school districts spend the money, then they apply for a reimbursement to the state. Over the past years, and this may be what Mr. Whitney was referring to, over the past years, the state has not allocated enough dollars into the transportation line to fully reimburse the districts for the costs that they incur running their transportation programs. There's supposed to be reimbursed. So school districts have eaten those costs or they've created those dollars locally or they've lengthened bus routes or they've driven buses longer and longer and longer. Just dealt with a superintendent today and he said, look, he said, I've got uh, 72 buses. They average 225,000 miles. What do you think I should do? Okay, that's gonna take more than a five minute conversation to figure that out. So to, his, to Mr. Whitney's point, transportation is still outside of the funding formula because it's still a reimbursement model. There really was no sleight of hand. It was just not funded fully again in the new budget. They did increase it some, but it's still not funded at a level that will reimburse school districts for the costs they incur for transporting kids. 
we believe it's important to transport kids because we have a lot of children that these ladies have talked about in the social services situation that if we don't transport them to school, they don't show up at school. They don't show up at school, they fall further behind in life, the cycle only gets worse for them. So that's the second point. And the third point, I believe, was is this, is this funding for this year going to create enough adequacy? The answer is absolutely not. This is not a silver bullet. This is not a magic fix. This formula will eventually move the money from the state to the kids that need it the most. It's likely to take, because of our state's financial situation, it's likely to take a decade to move enough money from the state of Illinois into those tier one and tier two districts to move them up to the 90% mark of adequacy. So we have a 10-year march, if you will, to move school districts forward to move them to adequacy so that kids in much of central and southern Illinois have a, ch a chance at an equitable education as compared to kids that live in high wealth areas. I've dealt with a superintendent in the last couple weeks. He, he called me because there's a piece in this bill, Senate Bill 1947, that it deals with the evidence-based model. He's at 180% of adequacy, okay? That's having a dollar and 80 cents for every dollar that you need calculated. He said, listen, in that bill, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ability for the voters in our area to initiate a voter referendum and reduce our funding by 10%. He said, how in the world would you expect me to run a school district if they reduced me to 170% of adequacy? You could have knocked me over with a feather. I grew up in Johnson City. I'm a Williamson County guy. I'm a Southern Illinois guy. I work in Springfield. I see these poor kids in these poor school districts, and I told him, I said, listen, I can take you and show you school districts that run between 40 and 50% of adequacy. He said, I don't believe that. That doesn't exist. I said, I'll, I'll drive three hours north. I'll pick you up. I'll drive six hours south, and we'll have a meeting. He said, never mind. I don't have time to do that. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the passive acknowledgement that it exists right up until we get a problem, until we get a solution, we get a bill passed. And then they go, oh my gosh, is this really happening in Illinois? Because it's not really recognizing in reality that the poor people exist in our state. And they're not just in Southern Illinois. Western Illinois has problems. Uh, Central Illinois, northwest corners of the, of the state, it's distributed all across our, our state. But this bill, if funded, will move the money to the poorest children first for the first time in over 40 years in Illinois. So thanks for your questions. A long answer, but thanks for your question. I think Jack wanted Dr. to Dr. Clark, um, we've had some discussions about the school funding situation. Uh, you talked about a 10-year period to get up to the adequacy level for everyone. Uh, what's the price tag on that? I think I, I read where it's between three and five billion dollars. Is that a Between three and a half and five billion dollars is the tag to get us there. This year marks roughly 10% of the lowest estimate. So that's why you get to the 10-year march. That's right, yeah. If you think about that, that means a kid starting school today will be nearly out of high school by the time you get to that point. So this is not a quick fix. But uh, Well, we have, we have children today that are freshmen in high schools. They have gone to schools that have been prorated since they started kindergarten. Prorated meaning they've, they've had a discounted amount of state money. So that we call them prorated kids. They literally have gone to schools that were always shortchanged since they've entered the public schools. They're prorated kids and they're freshmen. The other part of the question was for our uh, friends with social services and any of the, you'd like to weigh in on that? 
I'm sure. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I'm not going to speak as a leader of a nonprofit organization because you're right. Uh, some of the co those conversations we're not allowed to. But I can speak to as a board member of a coalition that represents human service providers. And what you're speaking about is the fair tax for Illinois, the graduated income tax. All I can say is, is that in order to serve, you know, the human service agencies, our businesses, everything that that holds our community up, that we must we must have more revenue. Um, Jack had mentioned before that the current income tax, or at least how it's structured, you know, obviously there, there was a gap in time where there was no revenue, but even when it got started, it's it's just not enough money uh, to be able to fill the need. I think it could potentially be part of the solution to graduate the tax to make it more fair. Um, I know that Paul Simon uh, uh, Public Policy Institute did a study where 72% of people in the Illinois supported amending the Constitution to allow for a graduated income tax, and more specifically people in Southern Illinois uh, really supported that. Um, so so what I can say is, is that we're in desperate need of more revenue, and I think that could potentially be part of the solution. I think our tax structure in Illinois, um, you can probably spend days talking about that and how it needs to change, but it could be a partial solution. I'd just like to say the thing that was most shocking to me about the budget impasse is how totally unnecessary it was. It was a failure not of, la of lack of money, but terrible policy. And um, we have solutions. We have solutions like you brought forward. We have many of them. The Responsible Budget Coalition, who the Sparrow Coalition has worked very closely with, has a list. You can go on their website and see. You can watch all of the numbers. And I don't know how we move from that list to the political will that takes to make those efforts happen, but Godspeed. Let me just ask again, have you talked with your local representatives? I'm sure all of you have. What have you heard back in response? Taxes isn't something that uh, I would say the local representatives that I speak to on a regular basis really want to have a conversation with me about. And also, as a nonprofit leader, I have to be very careful about those conversations. So it's usually not a hot topic. Anybody else? And I'll re-echo much of what you've said. As, as uh, federally funded, we are forbidden to do any type of lobbying. And so uh, most of our work is on an advocacy basis, typically on bills that are, are in the Senate, in the, in the House. And we work towards things that would benefit our health and social service programs in the state of Illinois. And we were begging for a budget because it's better to know what you got or you don't have than waiting to see every single day what you are needing. Let's go back to another question. Can you please state your name? <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen Kraft. I'm uh, here at uh, in Southern Illinois. Um, my question revolves around some of what you've just been talking about. So maybe it's repetitive, and uh, but possibly it's not. Uh, as an economist, one of a couple of things we always talk about in terms of trying to get economic growth and development is we talk about human capital, the need for social capital, the need for uh, physical capital and infrastructure. And what you all described at the beginning was the desecration of human capital and of social capital. And we've seen the destruction, anybody who drives our roads, of our physical infrastructure. And so during this budgetary impasse, rather than seeing the development of a pro-growth economy, we've seen our leaders essentially go about wrecking the economy of Illinois. So it's not a very attractive place for businesses to come 
We have our leaders now trying to attract Amazon to come to Illinois to establish a second headquarters. But we heard Jack describe eloquently what's happened to the system of higher education in Illinois, both at the community college level and at the senior collegiate level. It's not a very attractive area for a business to come and locate. So I'm curious, as you might have talked to area legislators in your area or talked to them about education generally, how did they respond to the crisis that was ripping our state apart in terms of the economy, the social structure, and why were they so unwilling to act creatively? We were hurting. The economy was hurting. Society was hurting. Why wouldn't they act? What do we have to do to these people to get them to act? They, they seem very unresponsive. Nobody wants to talk about taxes, but hey, nobody wants to see their kids going without a decent education, or grandma or grandpa going without good medical care. So I don't know if you have any answers, but I think we as citizens have to start demanding answers and holding the feet of our legislators, their feet to the fire. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we, uh, I'm going to put our social service folks on the uh, hot seat for that one, but Jack and, and Brent, either one of you would like to weigh in? Well, I think what ended up happening was it, after two years plus, you actually saw lawmakers voting their districts in many cases. If you look at those in terms of the directional universities, a lot of the uh, economic harm was being felt there very, very profoundly. Uh, in addition to the universities and community colleges, the social services uh, uh, aid networks were also being impacted very, uh, uh, very uh, severely. And so despite the uh, control that the legislative leaders and the governors have over their various caucuses, uh, people decided to show some independence. A lot of those people on the Republican side are not coming back. They're not, uh, a lot of those are retiring. We've had roughly 30 or 31 retirements or people moving uh, to different, uh, maybe some are going up trying to go to higher elective uh, office. Others are just cashing it in. They're, they're tired of uh, uh, the situation in Springfield. But um, you know, one point I would counter with Stephen, uh, with with your math is, Illinois is uh, Illinois. The gross domestic product of the state of Illinois is about 780 billion dollars. We're a first world nation in terms of the economy. Uh, when you look at us compared to places like Norway, Sweden, Argentina, Chile, South America, uh, Illinois still is a good place to do business. We're headquarters for a lot of global uh, commerce here. So I think. Uh, it's not always to everyone's uh, rhetorical advantage to uh, say what a great place Illinois is. Brent? Yeah, I, I think the question of why, why were they unwilling to act, uh, my, my experience 12 years in the Capitol is this. That question is a big question. The answer simply is this. It's all about reelection. Every action or inaction is about a calculation around being reelected or not reelected. Uh, what you saw that drug on that caused the two-year budget impasse was simply about that. 
um, uh, during those two years, you would go to those individuals and they'd say, well, we got to root out the fraud and abuse and bring, around, bring about business-friendly um, agenda items into the state. Well, that, you know, we, would, we had hearings and we would bring in directors of literally every state agency and we would ask them point blank, uh, what fraud and abuse can you identify in your area that you think we need to root out? Well, nobody could identify any fraud and abuse that they thought needed root out. So once you go through every conceivable department in the state and no one can find the fraud and abuse, that argument kind of loses its steam. So we did get to the point this past summer, and I, I give uh, strong kudos uh, to a legislator that probably lives physically closest to here of any legislator in Southern Illinois. Uh, the lady stood up and voted her district. And she now has a primary opponent because she did. And uh, she probably knew going into that vote. It was a tough vote. She voted for the income tax. She voted for a budget that funded SIU, that eventually funded the schools uh, and social service agencies. And now she'll have a primary opponent to fend off come March the 20th. But it was about re-election as to why it was pushed, pushed off so far. And I would also say, I think beyond just re-election, it, it's become a, a two-man fight in Springfield between Governor Bruce Rauner and the longtime House Speaker Michael Madigan, the Democrat. And Jack, if you want to weigh back in on this, you can. But it's, I mean, it's not only do lawmakers want to get re-elected, but there's nobody wanting to give a win to either side at this point. That's basically what it comes down to. It's a, it's uh, Illinois politics has always been kind of a blood sport, but. Uh, the amount of money that's going into these election contests now is totally uh, off the charts. In this last election contest in 2016, the races for State House and State Senate and the controller's special election was in there, the party spent over $100 million. The candidates for governor collectively now have raised over $100 million going into next year's gubernatorial contest. So the, uh, the situation comes down to, Kent Redfield had an interesting uh, comment about that from U of I Springfield, retired political scientist. He said, today's candidates are wholly owned subsidiaries of whoever's paying them. And if you're on the Democratic side, labor unions, trial attorneys, a lot of the traditional allies there, uh, that was some of the resistance to some of the workers' compensation reform, right to work laws, things like that. On the uh, uh, Republican side, you have a similar situation where they didn't want to break with Governor Rauner because there was, uh, it was entirely possible that they would start to draw primary opponents. And they're not only getting them through Governor Rauner, there's now uh, uh, other uh, conservative organizations uh, that are uh, beating the bushes to uh, get to primary challenges to the Republicans. Again, we'd like for you to step up if you have a question. We'd like to hear your comment, question, whatever you'd like to uh, ask tonight. I do want to go back, and uh, if you want to go ahead, if you'd like to go ahead and, and uh, listen. And if you could, again, say your name, please. Uh, yes, hi. Um, my name is Mitchell Oerich. I am a graduate student of SIU, graduated in uh, 2013. Uh, first off, I want to say this is a very interesting panel that you brought up here. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually surprised there is a lot more people, since I think a lot more people should be here to hear about this discussion. Um, my first question is on this but this little packet here. I saw the papers of all the different uh, cities and stuff, Edwardsville, Springfield, Carbondale. So is this like just, I know it's here in Carbondale, so are, are you planning on taking this discussion to all these different cities, or is it mostly just, uh, well, you know? we, 
we have done that. Actually, we're I think Edwardsville is our last one. We've done those around the state, but we hope to do more in the future. So we've been we started these when the state had no budget. State got a budget. Still, all these issues that we're hearing about, and so we've kept going with it and hope to continue to go. Okay, good, good. And my next question is, um, as you know, obviously 2018 coming up. Obviously, the state will be celebrating its 200th anniversary. Obviously, and uh, I'm curious, will the discussion be continued, of course, with that, or will it be, you know? Just gets continued and stuff so mm -hmm. yeah I, but we hope to continue on with that so good good appreciate right. that right. Thank thanks you. thanks for coming out I, I did want to go back to something i believe it was uh, sherry that said early on and that was when talking about social services we were she mentioned the word uh, desensitized that people became desensitized to these stories and when you listen to not just the folks on this panel but every social service agency i've heard from in the state they can all tell some pretty heartbreaking very sad stories and yet I don't think the public is uncaring. So what what's the disconnect there? Why, why why hasn't that resonated possibly more with the public? With the well, resonate with the public. Um, well, Basically, having the public call for action on, on some of these issues. I think I think our public is getting better about calling for actions. But what I can say is that human service providers haven't been the best um, advocates for their service and, and what they do. Um, when I testify in Springfield in front of the House or in front of the Senate over the past couple of years, um, I hear human service providers get up and they tell a story about what's going on with them and and what's happened. They talk about the human toll with the legislators, but. The the legislators, in a sense, kind of glaze over. They've heard a hundred different stories, and actually, so has the public. You know, the media ha wants to grab onto those um, tremendous stories. If, if someone has died or if someone's homeless, and and which are horrible stories, and they're, they are truly happening in our community. But I think what we as humans, whenever we hear so many of those stories and we feel like we don't have the ability to actually do something about it, because I think that's what the environment that we live in right now, um, whether it's politics or our neighbors, I think that we are so overwhelmed with what we've heard over the last two years is that we feel like we can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's just, again, not enough solutions, I think. Um, and I think that a regular, a regular neighbor, a regular community member feels like it's, it's too far out of their reach. It's, it's a problem that they just cannot grab onto and hold. Um, and human service providers, like I said, I don't think we've done a good job of talking about what we do. We've also been very accepting of the budget, as in crumbs. If human service providers get a crumb of a partial grant, we say, oh, thank you so much for that crumb. Can we have more crumbs? Instead of saying, where is our loaf of bread that you contracted with us? You, you said you were going to give us this contract. We've provided all these services. But yet, for some reason, human service providers seem to be OK with crumbs. And what happens with that, and, and even one was quoted last week, where it just, you know, we're just really thankful to be getting what we're getting at this point. What? Any other business person in the state of Illinois, whether you're a contractor or whether you're an attorney, that would be absolutely absurd if you ran your business that way. And so we as human service providers have to do a much better job of educating the community that we're businesses. Yes, we provide all of these services in our community, but at the end of the day, we employ people, they, we, pay, we pay taxes on uh, our part of our employees, and then they go out and spend in the community. That conversation is being left out when we talk about human service providers. So we have to do a better job ourselves. Before we go back for the question, if uh, either uh, of the social service uh, agencies here would like to weigh in on that. Yeah, yeah I would like to see. Uh, I think we also need to keep in perspective that 
this is not just an Illinois issue, it's not just a Southern Illinois issue. We are seeing a nationwide increase in poverty. Um, we are seeing not just food pantries at SIU, but at Stanford. We are seeing an affordable housing crisis. Um, so, and these are things, and a lot of the people that we are seeing being affected by these things, like I say, there's two groups. We actually see the people out on the streets, and you don't see the people that are your waitress. Um, they, these people are not advertising, I'm homeless. I can't pay my bills. I have to choose between medication and rent. These are not things that they're wanting people to know. Um, and these are, these are things that are very embarrassing because people do not want to have to be reliant on help. They'd like to have good, decent jobs here in Southern Illinois. Um, uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough of those to go around. And I agree with everything that's said. You know, I think that many of those folks are afraid to tell their real stories. They're embarrassed. Uh, and it's our job to help to facilitate those stories to be out, to be recognized, and for us to go ahead and move forward to try and provide the services that they need. Um, they need that health care. They need those assistances in whether it be housing or transportation or education or health care. So I, I think it is a dilemma that we have to continue to have a voice in what's going on for our citizens. We still want to hear from any of you that'd like to uh, get up. We still have some time left. I believe Brent said uh, extra credit if any students ask, I believe, a question. I'm, not, yeah, I'm sure you have something you could, you could weigh in on, but let's yeah. go back to our, uh, our questions there. My name is Bob Perrin, and we moved back to Southern Illinois about 13 years ago. I'm originally from Illinois. Went through the uh, university system. Uh, I had polio when I was 14 months old. My mother was killed when I was five, five and a half years old. So, and I spent Christmas Eve one time on Juhu Beach, where I secretly gave a beggar $600, as I remember. Secretly, so he wouldn't get beat up and robbed. So I have an empathy for what, what y'all do up here. But uh, uh, since moving back to Illinois, uh, I've changed. I've changed a great deal. And I've got to ask a question of, of the six of you. I presume you all work in the public sector. Do any of you work in the private sector? So our nonprofit is a private organization. However, we no, receive public. Just yes or no? It's private, but they contract with the state. Yeah, right? right. Okay. Yeah. It seems to me a budget involves two sides. There's a funding side, and there's a spending side. And the spending side, includes state workers, state employees, and all the agencies. And they claim to be taxpayers, but an entity cannot tax itself. We all know that. So the, the private sector is truly the only side that does any funding. And we hear about the state funding this and the state funding that. The state does no funding. It's the taxpayer that does the funding. The state is simply a conduit for the taxpayer's money, the taxpayer who has been taxed, thinking his money is going to be put to good use. So I, I would ask this, in future seminars like this, why would you not include somebody from the private sector? I appreciate that. We'll, let, me, uh, let me get the next person and we'll come back to that question. Go ahead. And please state your name too. 
My name's Sabrina Hardenberg, and I've formerly worked in a number of health-related jobs, such as another FQHC, like Shawnee Healthcare, um, healthcare law with attorneys, uh, working with personal injury, work comp, employment kind of plaintiffs. And so I'm uh, also somebody who's volunteered in uh, speaking about uh, reworking the energy sector in our state. And I'm conscious of state laws, how our local and federal candidates work in their seats in Springfield and Washington. Um, one thing I'm realizing being on some statewide coalitions for uh, legislation and uh, the acts and rules that end up in our Springfield agencies is that many people that are framing these uh, acts and rules are Springfield and Chicago-based and have an attitude that runs with this whole cycle we're speaking of tonight that we're too stupid to participate. And so I'm actually not part of the names on the website for the Illinois Environmental Justice Commission. Those are people from up north. I'm allowed to speak on the teleconferences that have been happening for over a year, I think, as a stakeholder. But I find it very strange that people like you all aren't also on that call. And they don't even recognize that very uh, thoughtful, business-versed, and educated people are down here trying to do the best they can in the situation that we are. You're invisible. And so for every act and rules public comment, Put them in. I know maybe you feel like you know, you're know you hand-tied being an administrator of a FQHC, and I know having worked in healthcare operations, you can speak only to some limits, maybe through your grants to HRSA or foundations in cocktail hour. But on the other hand, every citizen is allowed to speak up in these public comments, and so we need to put our two cents worth in there. There's also a uh, open house over at 17th Street Barbecue on November 16th, Thursday evening, where you can go and talk with all your representatives, and I would just keep plugging at them every which way that you could. Thank you. I'd like to respond, and um, yes, I did say at one point we as an organization have to be careful in regards to any type of lobbying that we do. That does not prevent an individual employee to do so on their own time, and believe me, we make our staff aware of issues, and they have the opportunity to make their uh, beliefs and things known to the legislators, and they do. Um, we have a very strong national and state organization that helps us in that regard as well. Um, but the federal laws do prevent us as an agency to have those types of activities. Anybody else? 
Yeah, I would like to say that um, in this, when the Sparrow Coalition started about two years ago, our intention was never to be involved in advocacy necessarily. That wasn't part of our original mission. We were looking for solutions. We were looking for solutions to already growing poverty um, and lack of adequate resources to help in Southern Illinois. <laughs> what we soon found out was that advocacy was greatly needed because not only of the restraints that the people might have legally as uh, heads of social service agencies uh, or in serving in their particular places, uh, but also because they were busy trying to survive. And then on top of that, now they're meeting with legislators, now they're you know, trying to, to send out appeals to their donors and um, just, just basically make it. So I'm glad to see that there are more groups happening like this, mm -hmm. like the environmental groups, people that are coming together and lobbying for their interests. And in Southern Illinois, many of us on the coalition, we don't have a lot of resources ourselves down here to be part of that. I was invited to go to a, a conference up north, and I said, well, nobody can really afford to take a day off work to do that, but thank you. So that's a kind of the unique situations that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Well, as a nonprofit, we can advocate for our services, and we tend to. However, there are a variety of nonprofits, private organizations in Southern Illinois that will not do it because they are fearful that for some reason it will have consequences on the programs that they provide, whether you know they're advocating for the services, saying that it's needed, and somehow they'll end up being targeted for potential cuts or something along those lines. I think right now a lot of private organizations live out of fear because unfortunately that's what we've been operating on for over two years is fear and uncertainty about what's going to happen. And when you live like that every day, not knowing what the next day brings, so many people are, are, are traumatized by what's happened and they're afraid to speak up because they think in turn that it's going to cause harm on their agency and the clientele they serve. I have to say just the opposite. I'm probably one of the most vocal nonprofit private sector uh, execs down in our area and I beat the road. I go to Springfield. I go to Chicago every month trying to advocate for our services down here, but there's not enough of us. We need more nonprofit providers. Uh, private sector businesses to speak up and talk about what we do and why it's so important. We're not necessarily choosing one side or the other, but we have to let people know what's going on and why it's so important to invest back in us. Appreciate that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and to get back to the earlier comment, I do think, uh, I think you make a good point about the need to have possibility of somebody on the panel who's uh, maybe in private sector, a business person, for example, somebody like that, somebody who represents the Chamber of Commerce, that type of thing. I do think there is a limit on how much people can pay in taxes. And um, before I get to the next question, I, you know, Jack or Brent, and Brent especially because we're talking about education, that is one of the areas, when you look at your property taxes, where does most of the money go? It's going to education. There is a limit on how much that you can be asked to pay, and I mean, I think are we are we near that point? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's if you if you look at the polling data on property taxes, uh, more than 85% of people or respondents to the poll uh, say they think property taxes either need to be frozen or brought down. 
I, frankly, I wonder what the 15% that don't want their taxes frozen or brought down are thinking. I mean, we all write that check uh, in Williamson County. You get an opportunity to write a check in July and again in September. I know each county kind of has its own cycle. So uh, I think there's something to this. Uh, if you look at the national data, um, Illinois is about 20% off between lo local reliance on property taxes as compared to state support. So we get about, on average, we get about 26% of our funding from the state, and on average, other states together get about 46%. When it comes to property taxes, there's a 20% gap on the state support. When it comes to property taxes, we're about 20% higher on property taxes as compared to the national average. It's actually exactly what the state has not been putting in over the last 20 years. So it's, it's truly, every local school district has tried to make up over time the shortage that the state has not provided to them. So that's driven our property taxes up. So the other issue besides that is looking at the assessments. We literally have counties uh, in not that far from where we sit tonight that haven't had a quadrennial assessment in the last 30 years. So you've got a, we've got a real assessment issue as well that's helping exacerbate the actual property tax bills from parcels that are transferring hands being sold. I think that's makes some very good points there. The preponderance of uh, on the school funding, for example, on the property tax has been out of whack for years. Paul Simon was writing uh, newspaper columns in 1955 about how that led to yes. uh, inequities in funding between the poor districts and the wealthy districts. And 61 years later, we finally got somewhere with that. Uh, it doesn't, Springfield's pace isn't always glacial like that, but there is more that needs to be done. Part of the problem, it's not the school districts necessarily, it's not all the school districts. Uh, Illinois has like something like 7,000, 6,000, 7,000 units of local government. California doesn't even have that many. So there's a, there are so many local property tax, uh, taxing districts around the state, it's, it's unreal. And I was talking to someone a few years ago, an urban planner in Chicago, and he was trying to do uh, mass transit uh, uh, work uh, and uh, housing work, uh, affordable housing work. And he said, you know, here's, a, here's a, a, a map of suburban Chicago and the city of Chicago. There are like several hundred units of local government to talk about how we, you know, run a freeway through some place. It's ludicrous how many units of local government we have in the state of Illinois, and that's part of the problem. And I also think uh, you're right, too, about when it comes to property taxes or any taxes, the state should treat them in a way that not as a, a never-ending spigot that is always turned on. Right. They should be treated very and spent very wisely. And I think that's what's frustrating about this budget impasse is because what we talked about, the spending continued at this rate unchecked for two years. Who's going to pay for that? I'm going to pay for it. Everybody out here is going to pay for it just to get us back on track. And I do. we have a couple of people want to ask a question. Jack, you have something? It kind of got lost under uh, you know, the, the, the tumult of the last few uh, months. I think property tax, uh, property tax freeze is coming. Uh, the Democrats and the Republicans were actually pretty close on that. Yeah. And I think in exchange for the tax increase that we just saw, uh, I would not be at all surprised to see that uh, emerge in the next uh, few weeks to months. Before the November election. Yeah, good time. <laughs> sure you can get back in line. I appreciate that. We've got about 10 minutes or so, so uh, we'll get to as many people as we can. Go right ahead. Hello. My name is Lee Bailey. I am a principal at a K-8 district here in southern Illinois. I've lived here my whole life. I've been in education for over 20 years, 
And I have to say, I've seen a decline in um, the interest in becoming a teacher in this state. Um, substantially over the last few years. I'd like to ask Dr. Clark to share his thoughts with us on why he thinks that is and what the relationship might be between Illinois' budget and the financial problems we're having and this huge teacher shortage that we're experiencing. Um, first of all, if, if you would go back in time five or six years ago and you would have said, uh, we're gonna have a teacher shortage in 2017, most people would have said, you are literally crazy. Uh, because at that point, when you posted a teaching job, you would have perhaps 100 applicants for the job, and you had to sort that down and pick the, the best quality candidate. But somewhere in 12, 13, it was actually 13, we, we passed a pension theft bill, and it started to try to take away the retirement security that t many teachers uh, had. And uh, it took us uh, roughly until May of 15 to, to win that case at the Illinois Supreme Court. But what it did, even though the case was won and it was put back in place, what it did is it, it really uh, scared off a lot of prospective teachers, uh, uh, people that would, would go to the university to go to school. If you look here at SIU, the College of Education, the number of students, in, uh, bachelor degree students that are now in line to earn a teaching degree is down between 80 and 90 percent. We're no longer producing the teachers because they're picking either some other state to go to or some other profession to go into. We've threatened their retirement security. We have made fun of them for their schedule. Uh, we have uh, threatened them with no state funding for schools. We've cut their funding for schools. You do that over a protracted period of time. We, in the school system, we do something for layoffs called RIF, reduction in force. It's the same thing in the private sector as a layoff. Mm -hmm. We've had enormous amounts of RIFs or layoffs. We've really run off the talent. We have 40-some border counties that have other uh, states right just across the border, and Iowa's constantly picking off our science teachers out of Western Illinois. Indiana's picking off our English and our special education teachers, and they're going both south and north out of Illinois. So it's a problem of perception about the profession, uh, and it's, it's a political problem, and we have to get our hands around. We now have a task force to figure out how to resolve the teacher shortage that six years ago just was, would have been uh, crazy to say we were going to have that. So it's, it's a lot of things, uh, Ms. Bailey, but uh, a lot of it's the rhetoric around the profession. We have to stop that and bring this back to being a noble profession. Go ahead. Personally, I hope you can. I lost my daughter from this area to a local state, and she, had a re uh, she reduced her retirement age about 11 years. There you go. Yep. And her benefits and, and pay is about the same. Yeah. I think this will be our last question or comment of the night. Hello, my name is Kim Rangich. Um, thank you all for the work that you do individually and the people you work with to help Southern Illinois. I moved here about seven years ago with my former husband. He graduated from dental school at UofL in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he got a job at Shawnee practicing dentistry. Then we separated, then we divorced. We have two boys in the Carterville School District. Um, well, one is at OLMC now. They are 13 and 15. I did not finish my degree before I had kids. And uh, for that, I greatly regret. And I am curious in this room who has a bachelor's degree, if you would raise your hand. 
So I might quite possibly be one of the least educated people in this room. So I'm standing here as a single mom without family nearby in a struggling economy in a state that it had not had a budget in a few years with a former husband who is financially supportive, thank goodness. We are amicable, thank goodness. Not every woman, not every man is as fortunate as I am. And in the coming day, I will not be fortunate if I don't figure something out quickly. I did not work enough years to be able to collect Social Security. I am short several credits. At one point, I wanted to major in psychology. It would give me the opportunity to teach here at Southern Illinois and to do some research. I wanted to figure out what produces thoughts out of chemicals and electrical reactions in our brains. Shortly after I decided that's what I wanted to know, somebody else had already figured that out. <laughs> so uh, then I switched to business and then the state budget impasse, and I saw the future and wondered what businesses would come here. So then I switched to teaching and saw the budget impasse yet again. One man once asked me, though he had had several drinks, what I wanted to do, and after describing this story, told me that I was a flake. I like to think I'm a logical person, unfortunately without a lot of options given the situation. So I have many questions. Several are probably unanswerable because we cannot predict the future. However, representing people in my situation who do not have degrees, who perhaps gave up several years raising children, who do not look good on paper, but who need to scramble quickly, and who need to make up for years lost professionally, what do you recommend? Because certainly I'm not alone. I also represent those who didn't make enough money in those years as they perhaps were working and they have to make up for time lost in a struggling economy. So my next question, that being one question, and then my next question is, what is the best resource, the best up-to-date resource for what is going on with the state budget? so that we can pivot ourselves appropriately, if that makes sense. Okay. Jack, you, you want to take that last part? In terms of good budget resources, uh, the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability has an excellent resource on that. The uh, Civic Federation has an excellent uh, uh, online resources about the Illinois state budget. Uh, there are any number of those out there. If you want to have, uh, if you're interested in the political uh, wars that go back and forth, the Capital Facts blog is an amazing resource in terms of what's going on on a daily basis in the state of Illinois. Uh, Politico's uh, column, Illinois Handbook by or Playbook by Natasha Karecki, is also fantastic. I read it every day. That's with the Sun. That's uh, she's formerly with the Sun Times. Anybody else? Uh those are the ones I read. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the, the first part of the question, if anybody else has a, has a response to that, any ideas on that? Well, the question prior to that was about a teacher shortage. I can tell you we're looking for teachers. Uh, we need special <laughs> education teachers. Uh, we need English teachers. We need science teachers. There, there are some pretty good teaching jobs. I would, I would retort with that, and I think you might find it to be a rewarding profession. There's also the ability to go back to, to graduate school while you're a teacher 
become an administrator, become a building principal. And if you really want some uh, excitement, you can come back to graduate school some more and you can become a school superintendent. That changes your uh, income brackets, but it also changes the excitement in your life. So <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's time and opportunity. Spoken yep. like someone from Johnston City right yeah. there. Um, I would like to say that I really resonate with what you were saying. Um, five years ago when I divorced my husband and um, shortly thereafter lost my job at SIU, I was laid off. I was one of the people who were laid off when there were um, officially no layoffs happening, so I was restructured. Um, if it were not for unemployment insurance, which is the most used uh, social service that we have, and the fact that I had a family, a middle class family here, who um, were willing to make sacrifices so that I could go back and get my Master of Divinity degree, I wouldn't be becoming a pastor very shortly. And I recognize that the difference between what I experience in Southern Illinois and what so many others is just what you're talking about, the lack of community don't have that family, don't have those things. One thing that we have been advocating is to find communities, find churches. We have churches who are adopting um, families just as they might a refugee family that are poor, to helping them with transportation issues, uh, medication costs, school supplies, things like that. Um, and really, we don't see any other route. We don't see uh, great jobs coming down the pipeline. We certainly don't see Illinois doing a lot to help us. We're federal, national trends don't seem particularly good. So what do we do? We get together as a community and do what we can for one another. We're uh, pretty much out of time, but I do want to uh, give our panel anybody that has any last comment or thought. And Jack, maybe you might be able to tell people what they should do if they have some interest in, uh, you know, advocating on behalf of some of these issues, other issues possibly. Well, there are plenty of advocacy groups around here. Uh, you're hearing from some of the folks who work in the social services agencies uh, areas, uh, but I would. Uh, I would uh, heartily encourage you to look into uh, those uh, advocacy organizations that work particularly uh, on issues in this area. There are plenty of them, and uh, you know, I think there's, uh, there's a good dialogue going on here, and people are really working hard on solutions. Okay. Well, again, if, uh, I'd like to thank our panel tonight. If you could please give them a hand for coming out. Thanks to all of those of you who came out tonight, those of you who asked questions as well. We want to also thank AARP for helping support this event and WSIU for, along with NPR Illinois, helping put it on. And again, we thank you for coming out tonight once again.